RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 327, Distant Voices. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Ken, uh, I don't want to do this early in the show. Something sounds a little wrong with your mic. That's because I'm playing with the sound, John, offering an audio illustration of this week's show title, Distant Voices. Oh, I get it! (laughs) Yes, I thought you might. That's what we do on this show. We watch an episode of Star Trek. Then we analyze that episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. As Ken said, this week it's Distant Voices, a.k.a. I am Julian Psyche and uh, Bashir's Brain and also Inside Out in Space. Uh, We haven't done the alternate title thing in a while. I want to try. Can I try? Okay. Oh, please, please, please. Uh, I'm going to go with the Wizard of Oz Light, Mm -hmm. uh, Six Characters in Search of a Point, (laughs) and Let's Not Fight Club. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That's, yeah, that's very good. Hey, I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first. But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn it over to the man with the trivia plan. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Champion. Why, thank you for that. Trivia for today's episode, Distant Voices. Well, the story credit goes to Joe Minoski. And as we know, Joe likes to bring quirky stories to life. See some of his other stories like on TNG, Clues, Time's Arrow, and of course, Masks. Now, his original pitch for this episode would have taken place off DS9 and would have used different characters from our regular cast. It was Ronald D. Moore who reined it in and set things closer to home and, of course, brought our regular recurring cast to the forefront. Now, according to him, the original was kicked around the office for a long time before anyone committed to it since it was so over the top with mythology and cultural symbolism Joe has just one more DS9 story credit, then we will catch up with him again on Voyager. The teleplay is by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. No intros needed there. Ira and Robert are two of the major script forces on DS9. And in this one, it was Ira who injected some of the humor elements into the story, like the flood of tennis balls. 
It was directed by Alexander Singer. As you may recall, Alex was working on Mission Impossible and really wanted to work on Star Trek back in the 60s, but he had to wait until the 90s where the production finally hired him to direct Relics on TNG. Five more TNG episodes followed, and we are right in the middle of his six-episode run on DS9. He will also jump over to Voyager, where he will direct 10 episodes. Now, you have very extensive old-age makeup for Alexander Siddig. Full face, neck, hands. Process took about four hours to apply each day it was needed. Michael Westmore's work paid off, though. He got an Emmy for this one. Also up that year in the same category, Michael Westmore for makeup on the Voyager episode, Faces. Yes, and uh, just in case there are any burgeoning medical students out there, pre-ganglionic fibers and post-ganglionic nerves are real things, and they are nothing alike. We got our first mention of this in Q-less in Season 1, and maybe, just maybe, this whole thing about Bashir messing up an easy question will come back. Stay tuned. Let's talk about guest stars. Well, of course, we welcome back Anne Gillespie as Nurse Jabara and Andrew Robinson as Garrick. We do have a Dabo girl who shows up in Bashir's mind. She is played by Nicole Forrester, and this role was her first professional acting gig. Many roles followed, including a recurring spot on Beverly Hills 90210 and Chicago Fire. She will turn up again in track with a guest spot on Enterprise. And Ken, Ken, she also turns up in a couple hundred episodes of a certain soap opera. General Hospital? No, The Guiding Light. Oh, The Guiding Light. I should have known. Because sometimes you have a thing for The Guiding Light. I don't know what it is. (laughs) So weird, right? Yeah. All right. We also have an intimidating alien called Altavar. He is played by Victor Rivers. Victor was born in Cuba, and then he went from a life of being in gangs to attending FSU on a football scholarship and then playing professionally. An acting career soon started after he left the NFL in 1982. He has guest spots on Miami Vice, The Flash, and he was in the movie Twin Peaks, uh, Fire Walk With Me. He did voice work on Batman Beyond, and he plays Joaquin Murrieta in The Mask of Zorro, a real historical figure who, in the movie, was the brother of fictional Alejandro Murrieta, the new Zorro. And this is Victor's only Star Trek appearance. Prologue. Dr. Bashir is having a sort of unpleasant lunch with plain, simple Garrick. Lunch is fine, though Julian's kind of bummed. His birthday's coming up. He's turning 30, beginning what he sees as the slow, inevitable march into middle age. Somehow Garrick missed the part where that bothers some humans. Their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Quark and a Lethian, Altavar. Altavar would like to buy some biomimetic gel, a controlled substance. Julian says no, and warns Quark to warn Altavar against trying to buy it from anybody else, since, in Federation space, that'll land him in the pokey. Unfortunately for Bashir, Altavar is not one to take no for an answer. When Julian gets back to the medical bay, Altavar is there, ransacking the place. Julian tries to throw the Lethian out, and ends up with electric shocks straight to his head from the palms of the Lethian Altavar. Julian goes unconscious as we go to opening credits. Act 1. When Bashir comes to, everything is on the fritz. 
screens don't work, the station computer isn't working, and there's almost nobody around. Though Julian does hear distant voices. They don't hear him, though. Passing a mirror, Julian notices that he's suddenly graying at the temples. In a situation like this, he does what any sane person would do. He heads to a bar. Quarks isn't hopping, though. Some unseen something is trying to destroy everything. Quark is cowering behind the bar. He's going to kill us, he whispers. He's going to kill us all. Julian tries to get Quark to come with him, but Quark says he's staying put until he runs away, screaming in terror. Taking a more subtle tack, Julian slinks away. Wandering the Rack DS9, Julian comes across plain, simple Garrick. Garrick confirms what Julian's seen. Nothing's working besides basic functions. No one's around. Then Julian hears them again. Those distant voices. Though Garrick does not. Garrick does note the graying at Julian's temples, though, so... Good? The two decide to split up. They'll meet on the promenade in an hour. Garrick tells the doctor to try to relax, and off they go. Inspecting the habitat ring, Julian sees nothing. Then, he sees even less. The lights behind him are being extinguished, one by one. Something is closing in on the doctor. Act 2. So the doctor hits a turbo lift, just in time to escape Altivar, the Lethian who shocked his skull earlier. On another level of the habitat ring, there they are again, the distant voices. Only these are getting closer. Or Julian's getting closer to them. My look! It's Dax, Odo, Kira, and O'Brien. They're holed up, trying to figure out how to get the station working and how to defeat the Lethian. The DS9 senior officers are acting... Strange. Dax is being aggressive. She wants to grab a phaser and hunt Altivar down. O'Brien is a combination of frightened and defeatist. Odo is more suspicious than usual, accusing O'Brien of being in league with Altivar. And Kira is... Well, honestly, she's just kind of Kira plus. And Bashir is older. Decidedly older. About 30 years older than the last time O'Brien saw him. Then... Wait a second... These weren't the distant voices, because there they are again. Julian can hear them, though again, no one else can. Meanwhile, accusation and indecision continue to play havoc with the crew. They decide they'll go and try to get things running together. When they find a place to work, everything is buster. The only thing O'Brien can get working is subspace communications. Receiving, no sending. And when he does, the distant voices are coming in loud and clear. It's Dax and Cisco talking about Bashir and the coma that he is currently in. If they can't revive him in three hours, he'll be dead. A quick scan of himself with a tricorder and... Yep, Dr. Bashir is in a coma. Act 3. Which means all of this is happening in his brain. Which means the DS9 people he's with are figments of his imagination. The tricorder proves it. No life signs from any of the rest of them. Plus, they have to admit they're all being weird. They're manifestations, different aspects of Julian's personality, different voices inside his head. O'Brien represents his doubt. Kira is Julian's aggression. Odo is his sense of suspicion and fear. And Dax, Dax is his confidence and sense of adventure. And the Lethian, it's not trying to wreck the station. 
it's trying to wreck Julian's mind, which the station represents. So, if they can repair the station, Julian will wake up, though that may have to wait. The Lethian takes Dax, though when Julian chases after her, he ends up playing tennis with Garrick? Somehow Garrick is already hit to this whole thing being in Julian's head, so he's not even as surprised as the doctor that they're suddenly playing a match. Garrick is being Garrick. He seems to have some idea of what's going on, though he's not saying much, except that they need to get the ops to get things running again. Bashir sends Garrick to find Kira, Odo, and O'Brien, while Julian tries to make his way to ops. On the way to ops, Julian comes across a corridor full of injured people, all being tended to by Commander Sisko. Of course, it's not Sisko. Julian figures Sisko represents Julian's level of professionalism and skill. The Doctor will need that part of himself to get Ops back in order, though when the two head that way, the Lethian emerges from a wall and pulls Sisko into nothingness, leaving Bashir alone once again. On the run to Ops, Bashir encounters Altavar, the Lethian. Implacable. Phaser fire does nothing. Altavar says he's keeping Julian alive long enough to see every part of him die piece by piece. Julian takes off, though Altavar yells after him that he cannot outrun death. Act 4. Still trying to get to Ops, Julian comes across a dead Kira and a dying Odo. Parts of Julian are dying. In the conduits, a hiding O'Brien says there's no hope, though he'll tag along with the doctor. When they finally emerge in the Ops, uh, they're not in Ops, they're just going around in circles. They're in quarks, actually. And look, there's Julian, on a table, with a group of people betting on his mortality. Julian says he'll bet on whether he'll survive, though his talk with Quark is interrupted by O'Brien turning up on the table. Dead. Quark deems all bets off and is killed by the suddenly present Lethian. On the run again, Julian trips and falls, landing at Garrick's feet on the promenade. Garrick says they need to get Bashir moving, but Bashir can't walk. He's broken his hip. Act 5. Garrick is borderline mocking Bashir. It was a good game, he says, but it's over. Your bones are brittle. You can't go on. But okay, Garrick will help Bashir to ops. When they get there, though, the place is decked for a birthday party for the doctor. Balloons, decorations, a pretty Dabo girl... But Bashir will not be dissuaded. He insists on continuing to the controls. Finally there, they can't find the proper panel to fix the computer. Bashir just keeps getting hit on the head with tennis balls. And Garrick is back to taunting Julian. And now Julian thinks he's not Garrick. And he's not part of Julian's mind. He's the Lethian, toying with Bashir, trying to wreck his mind. And the Lethian seems to admit it. Now, time to give up just like he's always done. Julian wanted to be a tennis player, but he gave up, not because he wasn't good enough, but because he didn't want to disappoint his parents. At medical school, he made a stupid mistake, one that kept him from being top of his class. He purposely answered the question wrong because he couldn't handle the pressure of being number one. And Dax? He was so into her. But he gave up his pursuit. Giving up is what you do. But Julian disagrees. He makes his way to the medical bay. 
The mistake he's made this whole time was trying to get to ops. He should have been going to the medical bay, the real center of his world. Here, he has control. Turning on the lights, the Lethian is not nearly as scary as he'd seemed before. And he can lay some truth on his adversary. He does have feelings for Dax, but the important thing is that she is his friend. And while he may have been a good tennis player, he's a great doctor. Even if he had been first in his class, he'd have still chosen to be posted here. With that, he purges the Lethian from sickbay, from his mind, and the real, young Julian wakes up in the medical bay. Enjoying another lunch with Garrick, Julian says it turns out all of it, even the part with the Lethian, was in Julian's mind. He was in custody almost from the time Julian hit the floor in the prologue. Garrick finds the story of Bashir's coma fascinating, especially the part where Julian's mind cast the Cardassian as the bad guy. He says there may yet be hope for the Doctor. The End All right, Ken. Uh, first and foremost, we, uh, we book in the episode with some food. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've got a, you got a spread at the beginning. I thought it like it could have been breakfast, but the, their thing is lunch together. Uh, but they are definitely having some tea, some, you know, coffee or rectagino in a travel mug, even though nobody's going anywhere. Uh, that, that always, uh, amuses me. Now, Bashir mentions cream cakes. Very uh, English thing, and it, it seems on track with what we see. But I'm not sure what's on that other plate. I'm just going to say like another pastry of some kind, although I would accept frittata or some other savory kind of, you know, light afternoon treat. Not not sure. Couldn't get a really good look at that other plate. Uh, but speaking of food, there's a great moment right at the end. There's a graham cracker that I swear is trying to make a break for it. Off Julian's right? plate. Did you notice that? I did not notice that. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even notice the food. Although now that I'm trying to picture what Garrick was eating, am I right in thinking it was a bunch of the same thing? Yeah, I could be. I okay. mean, wait, at the beginning scene or at the end? At, at the beginning scene. Because that would be a very yeah. Cardassian thing. Right. Yeah. Just, right? just always the same thing right. over and over. Yeah. Do you want a hot dog? No, I want seven of them. Yeah. Just <laughs> right. exactly the same. Please. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Bashir, so he's a little weird about his 30th birthday, particularly for a future in which people live to be well over 100 with great ease. Right. right? This is not a thing. You would think that middle age would be a different thing in the future. You know, it says, oh, I'm in my 30s. I'm just marching toward middle age. It's like, well, if you live to be 140, uh, <laughs> your your middle age is coming a lot later, presumably. Presumably. Um, and interestingly, uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf had turned 30 a few months before this episode was filmed. Uh, and Alexandra Siddig turned 30 a few months after it aired. And neither of them thought it was a big deal. I, well, I they're, they're both at the top of their game, right? Although so was uh, so was Bashir. Sure. Yeah. How were yeah. you when you turned 30? Uh, it, it took like maybe a second for me to just sort of, uh, absorb it. Just like, Oh, I'm turning 30. That that's kind of uh, a big deal. And then somebody, uh, who I worked with, who was maybe 10, 15 years older than me said, look, being 30 is great because when you're 30, people will take you more seriously as an adult, but you're still just doing all the fun things you did in your twenties. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was sort of me as well. Like my my mid thirties were like my time to shine. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and think... guess what? 40, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fine. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm, 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 yeah. I, I can see 50 uh, pretty close on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And every now and then I'm like, eh, it's, I, don't, I don't think I feel great about that. But, you know, like they say, it beats the alternative. Yeah. And, and it'll see. be fine because I'll keep doing stuff and it'll, you know, it'll be great. You right. Know? right. I think 70 is probably going to really get me. Okay, well, we'll we'll check in with you then. Please, please so, do. Please all right. do. Yeah. Uh, also, Julian, not a very gracious gift recipient. I, I understand that you know turning thirty is a big deal to him, but but here's the thing: when you get a gift that you're not excited about, you just say thank you, and then you avoid the topic at all costs uh, for the rest of your life. Yeah, you're not it's, you're not wrong about that. It was sort of terrible that he's like you know, and then and then Garrick is also like so is a. Uh, is Dax going to throw you another surprise party? He's like, dude. <laughs> Although, in fairness, the last time they had a party for Julian, it was kind of crap. Yeah, that's true. The time, you know, the time he lost the Carrington. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's like, wow, I can't leave this room fast enough. Yeah. His friends yeah. are terrible. His friends are, well, his, his close friends. Yeah. Which I guess would be um, uh, Dax. Yeah. And we're done. <laughs> that's it. Maybe, maybe Garrick, maybe not. It's kind of tough to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna say they're close. Um, it, now I know that you like uh, you like this idea of uh, now we've got the Cardassian uh, meal sorted mm-hmm. out, like seven mm-hmm. hot dogs. Uh, I love that he says it. Enigma Tales. You know, all the suspects are always guilty. Yeah, <laughs> Let's just figure out exactly where they go. I would think that you would love that too. And honestly, uh, here's the thing: I was thinking about it because he says because uh, Bashir says that what's really exciting is about a who done it is not knowing who done it and figuring out who done yeah. it. And yeah. and uh, and and Garrick's like, no, no, no. The really exciting part is figuring out who did exactly what and exactly how, right? Yeah. And I'm like, that's Law and Order criminal intent. Which oh, I loved okay. that show. That was the one that uh, it was uh, uh, Eric Bogosian was on it for a time. Uh, mm-hmm. Started off with Vincent D'Onofrio, but ended up with uh, Jeff Goldblum was playing the uh, the other cop half the time. Huh. Uh, yeah, I mean that that to me was it was a weird Law and Order. It was supposed to be sort of like Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah. Where you start off at the beginning and you know who the guilty party is. In fact, usually we see them, and the fun is in figuring out. You know, how is our cop character going to catch the bad guy if he's going to catch the bad guy? Yeah. Um, Olivia Dabo actually played a, an important role in that uh, in that series, by oh, the way. Shout out want to it, Olivia Dabo. Yeah, if you want a reason to watch it. But um, right. yeah, so I didn't think it was the worst thing in the world. Uh, even if I did think it was the worst thing in the world, though, I hope what I would do is say thank you. <laughs> hey, uh, I mentioned the makeup in the trivia, and, and it's cool how we get four distinct age changes for uh, Bashir in this episode. And it's very interesting because his whole look changes. Like, like it's reasonable. You go like, yeah, okay, I, I could see him aging like that. But he, he goes from Reed Richards. I was going to say Reed Richards, yep. Right, he goes from Reed Richards to full-on Dave Bowman. Uh, interesting. End. See, I was yeah. going to say Reed Richards, older Bashir, even older Bashir, Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just just with uh, with a little uh, makeup to to hide the green. Yeah, he was very Yoda exactly. at the end of that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I thought of Dave Bowman right away. Of course, you know pre fetal Dave Bowman. It's not you're not going full circle with that Dave Bowman. But yeah, 
Look, I know that this is not a thing in the episode, but it's the kind of thing that'll bother me unless we talk it out. Um, I know that this is all only in Julian's mind, but there's that moment that he sees the replicator and it's just constantly, there's just a stream of Tarkalian tea coming out of that replicator. So it's not a replicator. It's a food dispenser, like on the TOS NCC-1701. Well, no, I assume it's a replicator. It's just malfunctioning, like everything else on the station in Julian's mind. Okay, but but a replicator just replicates, like it just manifests food, like on right. a little transporter pad. Right. This, this is a replicator now that it does that, but it also has a little spout at the top that just oozes tea. Effectively illustrating how broken it is. Okay. That's that's what I'm saying. All right. So you have to say, okay, hey, replicator, replicate replicate a thing that is like a little spout that just oozes tea. And don't stop until I tell you to stop. See, I can't believe that that's where you're going to get stuck, though, because I'm yeah. stuck on the part, honestly, in the prologue where, you know, somebody comes to Quark and says, uh, I need to buy some drugs. and And real Quark would be like step right this way you wouldn't be like oh yeah let's go talk to a federation officer about where you can get this thing that's really illegal in the federation but tell you what you get stuck on the tea dispense i'm sorry replicator that's fine yeah i i will i will that's, you, you, uh, you do that man yeah i breezed right past that thing in the prologue um yeah now it, it is funny you know, we talk about uh julian and his co-workers and did you think for a minute that he must think that they're awful because it, it's all in his head He's mm -hmm. putting dialogue into their mouths from his subconscious. I found it hilarious. Like he just it, like in his head, the, the thing that's going on in his subconscious, he talks to his friends and then somewhere in his subconscious, his subconscious going, here's what you sound like. Blah, 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 blah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's you right now. Yeah, that's you. That's you. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is he going around telling everybody this story? That's the other thing, too. Like I can see telling Dax and Cisco. Yeah, because to to those two, he was like, "Oh yes, you're you're my drive. You're 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 my focus, and and you're my professionalism, and uh, and you're kind of a coward, O'Brien, is what you were the whole time. And Kira, you were like, you, you, you know how you get, but now multiply that times one point five, and yeah. Garrick, Garrick, you're evil. Yeah, right." Yeah, right. So totally reasonable. It will totally solidify his personal relationships with them. Um, and then then he gets to the point of so. So what does the Lethian represent? <laughs> well, well, Bashir, he's a real Lethian, you know, and I kept thinking, you know, in, in a way, all of us, we have our own Lethian. <laughs> Some it might be shyness or a lack of education. But for you, for you, Bashir, the Lethian is a big, dangerous alien who wants to kill you. You see, I don't think he is, though. No, I don't think the Lethian had anything to do with anything that was going on after after uh, after he drops Bashir in the prologue. No, like, we'll I come thought, back to it. We'll, well, we'll OK, if you to want it, to. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I, yeah, won't, yeah, yeah. I won't say what I was thinking now. Then I'll say it later. OK. All right. And then and by the way, a tip of the hat to the little the, the Marilyn Monroe JFK reference with the uh, happy birthday. I thought that was a, a fun way to do it. And Iris said in an interview is like, yeah, we just figured that the, the psyche, the subconscious is full of random references and weird things. So why not that? This is my imitation of Altovar. Hello. I would like to buy some drugs. Stealth minus 20. 
He really put the B in sub towel. We'll be hearing more distant voices in a moment, but first. But first, a word from ExpressVPN. Uh, I'm traveling again soon, John. We, again? So soon? I know, right? It's, a, it's yeah. a thing that I do. Once I start traveling, I apparently don't stop. I mean, I do stop because here I am right now. But uh, yes. yeah, I'm going to be traveling again soon and very happy to be bringing ExpressVPN along with me. Uh, for people who don't know what the VPN stands for, VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. And what that basically is, is a way to talk securely between two computers, say your laptop and your bank's computer, or, you know, even your email, basically anything that you want to keep sort of, you know, keep the communication safe, you'd want a VPN for that. They're used to protect private web traffic from snooping, interference, and censorship, and that is exactly what ExpressVPN does. It keeps your private communications private, and other stuff too. I mean, like it, uh, ExpressVPN can act as a proxy, allowing you to surf the web anonymously from wherever you want. So let's say I was traveling internationally, which I'm not, and I wanted to keep watching something that I'm you know, licensed to watch in the States. Get onto my ExpressVPN as say, yeah, I'm dialing in from Chicago. And then it's like, oh, okay, well here, watch, you know, whatever, the way you always would. Um, so, I mean, they're nifty little bits of, uh, bits of technology. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. It is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it is what I use to protect my traffic when I use public Wi-Fi. That's whether I'm going to another state, going to a coffee shop, no matter where. It does all of that, and it speeds that impress me every time. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N. Expressvpn.com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. I think there's some stuff here to talk about with uh, Bashir. This is a Bashir episode, after all. Mm -hmm. It's all about what's going on in his noggin. Uh, first of all, let, let's hit on just a, a quick thing that we talked about in the last segment briefly. Uh, Bashir is very young. Yes. Uh, 29 here. Um, so that means that when we met him, he was 27 on uh, the, the first episode. So, I mean, he, here's a guy who just zipped through, you know, school, medical school and a Starfleet training and everything. And boom, he's a doctor. He's so good. He's up for the Carrington Award. In right. A little soon uh, for that, I think. But yes. Yeah. A little soon. But he's he's really good. So he's a genius. He, he's an overachiever. He's a big guy. Uh, but he's I, I'm sort of I'm amused by this thing again. But 30 is the long, slow march to middle age. Look, that's a personal thing. That's I, I get it. It's a character trait they gave to this guy uh, that he would be so concerned about that. But I, I really liked um, I really liked Garrick's uh, phrase. Well, advanced age is seen as a sign of power, dignity on Cardassia. Uh, that was an interesting way to phrase it. And you know, look, we we try to we try to talk people down if they're uh, feeling stressed about maybe having another birthday, a milestone birthday in this case. But uh, you know, I thought uh, I thought Garrick was doing his best. I thought Garrick was actually being a a good friend and a sympathetic ear, and did not take too much offense at the uh, at the shunning of that gift, which uh, might have been a very thoughtful gift. 
So what about the part, though, where uh, 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 Bashir takes off Quark's head and Garrick's like, oh, don't mind him. He's turning 30. Yes. I, mean, I mean, he's not. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's a cute little comedy moment. But do you really think that's being supportive when he's like spreading spreading Bashir's business all around? So I love that line for two reasons. I, I love it because it could have been just sort of the uh, the insensitivity of it. But it could also be Garrick like assuming, oh, okay, I just learned something about human culture and I learned something about my friend hmm. and, and I'm, I'm treating that sincerely because that, that's what he says is going on. So, of course, somebody else who doesn't understand, you, you would say that to, to protect your friend. You just say, oh, don't, don't mind him. He's, he's turning 30. And, and I, I didn't understand that until now, but, but you get it, of course. That's interesting. Uh, part of me wishes that he had been having this conversation with Dax. Because Dax has turned oh, 30 sure. at least seven times. <laughs> right. right. She has. Well, I mean, I don't know. Actually, Jadzia probably isn't 30 yet. But, okay, well, so she she was like, I think when we met her, I think they said something about her being around 28 or so. so oh, okay. So presumably she she's 30 now. Okay. Yeah. And how do, how do the Trill celebrate their birthdays, by the way? Oh, like crazy people. Well, okay. Just... But <laughs> is, is it happy birthday to the host or happy birthday to the symbiont? And like which one or do they have two birthdays a year or more? Uh, because I don't even know. Uh, Trillium, Trillium. What's the name of their planet? Planet Trill. Tr- uh, Trill Town. Trill, yeah. <laughs> Trill yeah. Vegas. I don't know um, like what the orbit around their sun is. It could be like every 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 90 days could be another mm-hmm. birthday for come to think of it. Maybe the Dax Symbian isn't that old. It's just their planet goes around their sun really fast. So fast. <laughs> He's actually like 18. Yeah, right. Which would also be well, kind of fun. That would be, yeah. I, well, look, either way, I think they have a blast. They just, they have a great time. But it might have been interesting to have, I mean, because for Julian to have that conversation, I remember one of my youth leaders who I thought was one of the coolest guys ever. He was a, uh, he was a freelance writer, still is as far as I know. Uh, had just a tremendous amount of success as far as I was concerned, but I was 15 or 16. I remember when he turned 30 and he, he freaked out to the point that I could see it. And I was asking, you know, other people, other youth leaders, like, what's going on with Mike? And they're like, oh, he's turning 30. I'm like, Mm-hmm. And sounds awesome, you know, <laughs> to me. It would have been interesting to have him have that discussion with somebody who actually did understand, like yeah. maybe Dax, who's done it a million times, or Cisco, who is, you know, what, 30-something, early 40s, maybe? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe somebody who knows what he's talking about, as opposed to the guy who has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> right. But without that, we don't have the uh, comedy hijinks of the uh, the Garrick and Bashir duo. True. Um all right, so it, you brought up the Lethian, and I brought up the Lethian before. And I, I look, I, I think the thing that's going on here is we, we're left with not enough specific detail. But the thing that stuck in my head is I, I was wondering what was happening with the Lethian immediately after the fact. You know, immediately after he he zaps Bashir, and then we learn that Odo arrested him right after mm-hmm. uh, Bashir, so he didn't get two meters out until uh, Odo arrested him. But here's the thing. I, I got the impression that the psychic connection, the psychic torture was ongoing. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. Wait, well, why, why don't you think so? And then I'll... Uh, because they said at the very end, um, yeah, it turns out he was, he was arrested almost immediately. Mm-hmm. I, I assume that he would have to be somewhere doing something if he's still going to be controlling Bashir. I really did feel like the whole thing was, honestly, all of it was happening in Bashir's head. 
um, which is how he was able to exercise him so easily at the end. Like once he realizes, then all he has to do is push the right button and make him go away, right? Yeah. Um, I think he thought that there was a boogeyman. I think he thought there was an outside influence, but I do think it was all him, um, which I like. I like the I like the fact that uh, the parts that Julian needs to stay with him, you know, represented by Odo, Kira, O'Brien, and Dax, or maybe not even the parts that he needs. Like certainly, he doesn't need the the suspicion that Odo has. He doesn't need the fear mm-hmm. that uh, that O'Brien is exhibiting. But just like Kirk and um, the Enemy Within. Um, it's going to be with him no matter what. So, sure. so he yeah. can, he can run from that or he can take it with him. He can say, all right, this is part of me. And I know this is part of me. So I need to work with this because, you know, all of these parts of me are, you know, part of who I am. And so literally when he's trying to figure out how he's going to fix things, he takes every part of himself with him, um, which uh, the lizard brain panic represented by Quark and the parts of him that would try to sabotage himself, represented by Garrick as the Lathian, and then later just as a Lathian, um, that he doesn't need. And so that he is he is fighting, he's trying to stay away from, he's trying to get rid of. And he does. He gets shut of it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he doesn't really get shut of Quark. Quark takes off and runs. Uh, see also, <laughs> you know, lizard brain panic. But um, he spends his time either trying to get away from the thing that's trying to sabotage him, which is the Lathian, or uh, or trying to fight it, either way. Um, but I mean, just the ease with which he got rid of him in the end. And it was also, I think, it was also um, Garrick saying, "So in all of this, uh, you cast me as the evil." That wasn't yeah. that wasn't the Lathian doing anything. That was it was all happening in Bashir's brain. It seems <laughs> to me, including the Lathian still doing stuff. The Lathian was just was just his his fear and his doubt, uh, you know, trying to trying to get him. Yeah, and, and see, I, I get that, that everything is definitely happening in Bashir's brain. I, I guess that, you know, it, it's one of those unfortunate things about a sci-fi premise is that you you present this very interesting idea that this is this is what Lethians do. This is how they kill their enemies, or, or at least in some cases they do this. Who knows? They, they might have phasers as well. Um, but this is uh, the way that a bee sting... Uh, would affect you in one way. That's what the bee does. It, it inserts that little stinger in you, and then there's a venom, and then you hurt for a very long time. Uh, but this is what a lethian does, is they come up and they grab your head, and then the, the psychic attack, the psychic venom, begins. And I... I was sort of left with the impression that, yeah, Bashir's psyche is creating all of this stuff, but there is an element to that that is outside of him that is just whatever influence the Lethian leaves behind, whatever bit of psychic energy, whatever bit of psychic, quote-unquote, venom uh, the Lethian has inserted into his brain— and that Bashir actually has to fight that mentally again, but the way he does it, the way he fights it, is he's relying on all these other voices, these other characters in his head, which are representative of the the many fractured pieces of the human mind. See what I wish? Well, I wish it had been explained more clearly, because I think you could write the story in just the same way of... There's a Beta Zed who's on the station who hates Bashir for some reason, and then he gets, you know, he tries to drop a crate on Bashir's head. The only problem there, of course, is the Beta Zeds can do the same thing as far as getting inside your mind and playing with it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I, it, it felt to me like it was just like we had something happen in the first 30 seconds or the first minute and a half. And then everything else that happened was independent of all of that. It was just, it was just Bashir's coma story. It was just the examination, Bashir's examination of, of, you know, things that scare him. He'll take things that scare him for 300, John. <laughs> I like it. That is an episode of Jeopardy that I would love to watch. With Julian back in the real world, it is time to hear what we heard from Distant Voices. Distant Voices, John. The episode is called Distant Voices. My God, that, that was so... That was so lifelike. That was so great. I was convinced there for a minute you were distant. Yeah. And then, then you weren't. Well, a funny story about me. I actually am. Wow. I'm very distant. <laughs> uh, it's a part of the show where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings and try to figure out whether the episode stands the test of time. Uh, why don't we start with that one? Uh, the, the part where the episode holds up, we decide for ourselves, not for you. Hey, every episode of Star Trek is somebody's favorite episode of Star Trek, or almost everyone anyway. This might be yours, and, and that's okay. For us, though, we're trying to figure out whether this episode holds up, and we start with that. Uh, John, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? So it is a really clever way to make a bottle episode. You know, a bottle meaning we don't have any uh, locations we have to go to. We don't actually have to bring in a lot of extra actors or, or create uh, new concepts here. You just shoot on your existing sets. And uh, they did a good job of that. I was reading in uh, Terry Erdman's book about how uh, they approached the lighting from kind of the opposite way than they would a normal episode. Just to say they just turned everything off. And then they went and just turned on the little accent lighting around to give it this kind of cool, creepy look. Um, so it, it was creative and it was clever in that. And it was also a clever and creative way to use your existing cast. Let them play something different um, by having them all as manifestations in Julian's head. Uh, so it was very moody and stylistic. And uh, uh, Sid is great in this he's look it, it is not the easiest thing for a young actor to play old we've seen it done well we've seen it done poorly um there are some interesting reveals and a little depth about uh the bashir character here maybe not a ton but it, it's interesting stuff and look he carries the episode uh, i saw in an interview that he's in all of uh, all of the episode except for like 15 seconds of footage mm. so that's pretty tremendous um but here's the problem so i'm not satisfied with the solution at the end because it, it just sort of leaves me with, okay, well, well, what did he do? He just decided, uh, I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to fiddle with this computer, and now I'm okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but look, the, the be-all and end-all of an episode's worthiness is not whether it holds up to repeated viewings. But, but in this case, I think it's an important factor for me. Um, we have an interesting premise 
But the twist, I feel like, is just given away far too early, and or I just I, I got what was happening here far too early. So it just feels like we're marking time until we get to the end. Um, sometimes the Twilight Zone has that problem where you have this interesting premise and you just sort of know the twist or it's telegraphed right at the beginning and you're just waiting until the characters figure it out at the end of the episode. Um, so, yeah, there, there are these fun psychodrama moments in here. Um, but at the end of the day, what does it add up to? What, what does anybody learn at the end of the day? Again, it's just Bashir going, uh, oh, I, I figured the thing out. I'm going to be stronger than you. And here we go. <laughs> so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold up. And it's too bad that it doesn't hold up because he's so good in it. Uh, it's a visually interesting episode. Something that I didn't mention in the trivia was how uh, the director, Alex Singer, decided to shoot. Uh, remember that that long scene in the conference room or the, the wardroom where you have uh, Bashir's first encounter with everybody mm-hmm. in the same room? And it's a it's a five page scene. So it's like five minutes long. And they shot it all as one uninterrupted take. And they did that like five times. They settled on the, I want to say they settled on the fifth take. So maybe they shot it six times and they settled on the fifth take. And they just punched in with some cutaways to reactions and and some individual lines in there. So it's really unheard of in TV. It's very difficult to do. They rehearsed a lot, which you don't do in TV. So they could coordinate and choreograph the actor's movements with the camera movements to get that master take. So there's technically some cool stuff going on here, but I, I just, it, you know, every time that I rewatched it for our uh, recording, I didn't feel like it got anything new out of it. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate because there's stuff to like here, but uh, I don't feel like it holds up. What about you? Yeah. So when you said in trivia that it was Joe Minoski, mm-hmm. um, of course it was. Yeah, right. He's got to bring the weird. Well, it's not just bringing the weird because I'm fine with bringing the weird, but he has done two episodes in particular of of track that I can think of that felt like they should be important that that weren't Um, Mm. masks and dramatis personae Uh, for masks for people who don't remember the uh, Enterprise D. And TNG encounters uh, some sort of relicy, sort of like a, a satellite or something, yeah. and it ends up wanting to teach everybody about itself, and so it takes over the Enterprise, and nearly destroys it, and everybody's wearing masks, and that's a thing. Uh, and Dramatis Personae, that was the one that you and I thought uh, that was a, a Deep Space Nine. I can't remember what the thing was that happened here, but basically everybody ended up taking parts in uh, like a like a really old like battle that happened um like a dramatic sort of like julius caesar kind of thing uh yeah, like, is it the alien consciousness trying to impose its memories or it playing itself out in their minds right but in a very violent yeah. way sort of like yeah, the, yeah. the mad king from game of thrones or you know um, othello or something along those lines Macbeth, mm-hmm. maybe um, and, and, and both of those, it felt like could have been stories that, that said something and they, they had trappings of being very 
important. But then when you try to figure out what they're saying, it's like, oh, well, it turns out nothing. I didn't realize that this was a Joe Minoski episode, except while I was rewatching for our recording, um, one of the times I thought, yeah, this feels like masks. <laughs> it yeah. feels like there should yeah. be something important said here, but there isn't. Now, I think to the point of everybody has fear, everybody has doubts, everybody wonders whether they did the right thing, right? That can be an important message to relay. The problem is you're relaying it about one of the world's most, I'm sorry, one of the galaxy's most brilliant doctors who, if he had decided not to go into medicine, could have been a tennis pro. And by the way, anytime he wants to get with a lady, he pretty much just tells one of the most boring stories you've ever heard, and still that works. <laughs> This is not, I mean, okay, maybe we all have self-doubt, but I'm not going to feel like that's as inspirational when it's coming from a could have been a tennis pro, ended up being a world-famous doctor instead, or a world's famous doctor instead. Um, had we seen him deal with this kind of thing, had we seen like tinges of regret from him in the past, then it might be a bit more believable. I went to... Um, I can't remember the name of the episode. Uh, Tapestry, I think it is. The one where, where Picard uh, got stabbed in the in the back by the Nausicaan, and then I think Q gives him a chance to see what his life would have been like in another way. Sort of like It's a Wonderful Life, right? And, right. and, and we hadn't seen a lot of that kind of regret from Picard, but I feel like we had seen just enough of that kind of regret from Picard that that worked. We've never seen Bashir questioning himself. We've never seen Bashir wondering whether or not he did everything that he should have done. We've never seen any any semblance of doubt in his mind, I don't think. And I'm fine with that. I think I think he's a suave character at this point. I think he's a good character at this mm -hmm. point. But then when you want to say, oh, and look, he's also human. It's not what I'm going to Bashir for. Not not to this point anyway. He was the horrible puppy dog. He has matured a bit. And then we get this. And it's like, oh, that's that's a thing that Julian does. All of a sudden, because we need him to this week. Um, I will tell you, just as a funny aside, I wondered if they told us uh, with Garrick's uh, gift in the beginning, if they were telling us not to be bored by what was going to happen. Because you said the twist came too early. Yeah, yeah. We find out, I think, at the end of Act 2 that all of this is in Julian's head, and we still have three more acts. <laughs> yeah. to work through that, right? Not unlike the procedural that, uh, that Garrick gave to Julian, right? The hollow novel. Um, which I think actually sounds fascinating. But uh, it turns out I agree with Julian, at least in this episode, because knowing what the payoff is and still having to... It's like, it's like when you're standing in line at the grocery store and you're like, do I really need these cookies? Because there are two full carts in front of me. I could just, I could just leave and not have the cookies and be okay. I mean, we're, we go through a lot here having already had the payoff at the at the uh, at the middle of like oh it's just all it's all stuff that's happening in his head and in the end it won't have actually happened and it won't actually matter right so i think i'm with you yeah that that's sort of the difficulty with this and i and i wondered like okay you you have the the ds9 dream team here you got joe minoski bringing the weird mm -hmm. you've got uh renee who's uh really doing a lot of the day-to-day -day. uh you've got ira and robert hewitt wolf who are putting their stamp on everything you got ronald d moore again no slouch who is chiming in to sort of reel things in where they need to be reeled in but with that team assembled uh, I, I feel like when you reach an episode like this, you go, okay, we have the premise. We know the mechanics of how to do the show, how to get the character in there and how to get them out of there, even though I'm dissatisfied with that ending. Um, 
But at the end of the day, what is it about? What does it actually mean to the characters who are affected? And I wonder, like, this is one of those where I'm waiting for pillar filler. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm waiting for a Michael Pillar type to be able to say, hey, you have all the cool story mechanics down. You have the the style and the moodiness and the intrigue there. What we actually need is something that is heartfelt. Even if it's a, you know, 20 or 30 second scene of dialogue that actually shows us the impact and the meaning here for the characters. So I, I in different hands and look, you, you don't want to beat a script to death before you shoot it. At a certain point, you just have to be done with it and say, all right, this has to go before the cameras. But I wonder if, uh, again, another pass by somebody who had a little more humanistic eye on what was going on could make this really valuable. Uh, uh, and and uh, let's OK, let, let's take one of the most beloved TNG episodes of all time, The Inner Light. Similar idea where you have a psychic experience by the character for whom none of that stuff should matter because it's not his life. It's not actually happening to him in real time, but it affects him. It affects him deeply. Mm-hmm. And in this and look for everybody who has watched all of DS9 recently, <laughs> we realize that there is more of Julian to come over the next uh, three and a half seasons. But. Picard is a guy who is changed forever by that experience. And at this, I feel like we get to the end and it's almost like the freeze frame moment where it's just like, well, I woke up from that. Glad that's over. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. So I think I accidentally did my messages idea a moment ago. Um, You know, the part that everybody carries doubt, uh, that kind of thing. Um, That's, about the only thing I pick up from it were their messages as far as you were concerned. No, I mean, the only thing in addition to that that I can take away from it, uh, if they were trying to say something about the, this human mind outsmarting the, the alien influence uh, because, okay, that particular human mind is really strong, uh, uh, okay, uh, there's really nothing you could take away from that. But uh, maybe there is some interesting thread in here about the fear of aging, not an unfounded fear at all. That is the thing that cripples literally and figuratively the Bashir going forward of the story. He breaks his hip. He's losing his faculties. He needs help. It's heartbreaking. And again, Sid plays it very well. That's a hard thing to do. Um, we, we saw it in the deadly years. Sometimes it was okay. Sometimes it was not. We saw Patrick Stewart do it in the inner light. And that was mostly very good. And it speaks to the strength of the actor there. Uh, so if there's something to be taken away just about that human experience, okay. But I think it loses its resonance if you don't have that have an impact on the character after the fact. So uh, I, I would say that as far as a message or moral or meaning goes, I don't think they were trying too hard with that in this one. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Tons of podcasts to check out on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Shows like Mission Log, which you are soaking in. Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Your Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam. Shabam! All those podcasts all in one place. 
podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be great. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Through the Looking Glass. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. In Julian's coma, why was it the computer? That did not work. Carbon chauvinism, through and through. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.